You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. In general, in higher education, the people at the top aren't very diverse, and the U.S. is no exception. According to the American Council on Education, 83% of university presidents were white and 70% were male in 2016. Among the Ivy League currently, 62% of presidents are men and 100% of them are white. Race and gender is just one of the reasons why Ruth Simmons, the daughter of a sharecropper in Texas and a descendant of slaves, is such a unique leader. She was the first African-American president of Brown University, which she led for 11 years. And before that, she was president at Smith College, where she set up the first engineering program at a women's college. She was recently called out of retirement to lead her hometown university, Prairie View A&M, an historically black institution in Southeast Texas. She's about to finish her tenure there, and I had the pleasure to speak with her recently for THE Campus Live US. We covered her pioneering work to research Brown's links to slavery, the future of affirmative action, legacy admissions, and how to get more people that look and think like her into university leadership. Here's the full interview. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for joining us today. Your breadth and experience in higher education will be a real asset to the conversations that we're having at THE Campus Live US. Um, I wanted to start our conversation first kind of looking back. Um, and I wanna roll the, the calendar back to 2006, whenever Brown University, where you were president, published perhaps the first investigative report into the university's uh, historic links to slavery, which now, almost 20 years later, many universities have undertaken something like that. I wonder how you kind of reflect on that achievement uh, as a leader of an institution at that time and how you, if you keep track of this stuff, if you, I know that your background is in African-American studies, so do you keep track of this? And if you have any kind of reflections on, on how those studies have evolved in the 20 years? Well, first, uh, I'd like to say that um, it's been a big surprise to me because in undertaking the uh, study in the first place, uh, our aim was pretty simple and straightforward and related only to our history as a university. Uh, We wanted to answer a very simple question. Uh, And that is, what was the relationship between uh, slave trading and founders of the university? So much had been uh, erased from the history books um, that we couldn't really apprehend what had happened. Uh, And we had to have some kind of historical process to uncover the facts. And so not coincidentally, one leader of the committee was an historian, a Southern historian, as it turns out, um, who was able to guide the process, um, find the documents um, that were relevant to the study. So it started with an effort to, um, to answer that question, but One might ask today, well, why? Why was that so important? Well, it was important because we we were a university and universities don't turn away from questions. They don't turn away from um, 
trying to solve problems. They turn, don't turn away from uh, uh, ferreting out uh, facts that may be ambiguous or hidden. And so it seemed natural to us to do that process and to try to get to a comprehensive perspective on our history. Now, um, it's also true, if I'm being honest with you, to say that uh, we knew that, that race and slavery were the third rail of American history and politics. So we were very much um, taken with the idea that uh, we needed to prove that we could probe our history without being divisive. We could probe our history by um, having many perspectives on that history. We could probe our history by uh, coming out on the other side of it stronger than ever as a unified community. Um, and so we were very careful to try to lay things out in a way that allowed people to be a part of it and to own it, no matter what their perspective was and no matter how much how fearful they were of issues of race. So I regard that as our greatest achievement, frankly, that we were able to do that. Mm. And because we were able to do it, it gave permission for a wide array of other entities to undertake this very uh, difficult subject. And so it wasn't just universities that followed, it was um, historical societies, it was insurance companies, it was um, corporations and so forth. Um, and even the United Nations um, did a, um, uh, a, a process um, uh, for its member uh, nations. So uh, we feel immensely proud of the fact that we did it in a way that encouraged others to follow. And now over certainly over a hundred universities have, uh, have done the same thing. And I would say the list continues to grow. Uh, as you know, Harvard released its report uh, this year. Uh, there are many other universities that are undertaking this work and this will go on for quite some time because remember now in that period of time during slavery, so many institutions, so many cities and states were involved that we still have a lot to uncover. Mm -hmm. What strikes me when you talk about this and when I read some interviews that you did at the time um, is that that consensus and I think you called it unity uh, around this topic that that really was kind of a, a an aligned goal with it not just finding the truth of the history but also finding that consensus and that middle ground I think there was a, a dental dinner party where one of your colleagues told you that um, they might actually end up having to print two different reports because they couldn't find that middle ground. And you told them that you would consider that an absolute failure if Absolutely. they did that. Absolutely. So I, I, <laughs> go ahead. I was intent on that. And I, I tried to stay away from um, guiding the committee. But when they did come to me with those critical questions about, uh, about how this process should look in the end, I was very assertive in saying, no, we had to be uh, truthful, transparent, and not um, cop out in the end and try to do uh, a lot of different things to juggle the findings. Uh, mm. So, so I'm, very, I'm very happy that we settled on one, on one report. T looking at that um, approach now through the lens of 2022 and um, 
we're perhaps in a, a, a fake news world that we're living in now. We're in a cancel culture world. We are in a culture war world right now. Do you think you would have been able to make that same argument and facilitated such a, a middle ground finding report now in the in the world that we're living in? Of course, it's very hard to say, but I would I would just remind you that at the time we started this process, um, uh, it, we were quite divided as a country because the way that this got introduced uh, was um, through a group of scholars that raised questions about reparations. And uh, Charles Ogletree was one of those um, individuals and they were uh, proposing that uh, lawsuits be filed to recover uh, damages from um, these historical uh, ties to the slave economy. And so uh, as soon as we started our work uh, and it was reported, um, the uh, similar kinds of vilifications arose in that time because of the issue of uh, reparations and people were fearful that this was all uh, a subterfuge for trying to do something like accuse uh, people, uh, pillory uh, people in the public square, uh, and so on. So, th that, so uh, there were that I had a, somebody who traveled from across the country and sat in front of my house, uh, for example, uh, on the on the campus, um, enraged about the fact that this was being done. So. Uh, I would say it was not as generally polarized um, mm. as it is today, but it was it was a pretty controversial thing that uh, to undertake at the time that we undertook it. For that reason, we had to make some adjustments. So we started out with the idea that we would have a pretty straightforward academic process and um, and a report, but it became clear almost immediately that many regarded the work as suspect uh, without any evidence. And so we slowed the process and decided that we would um, take advantage of the artifacts that we had uh, in our uh, archives and show, just show people. So the first act of the committee was actually um, exhibitions uh, where we um, showed uh, slave um, uh, logs um, uh, from, uh, from the John Carter Brown uh, archive on our campus. Uh, we showed objects um, that had been preserved um, by the Brown, uh, Brown family. And so uh, I think that was quite eye-opening to people because as they came in to see the exhibition and saw the real objects um, that um, made it possible to begin to talk about what stories lay behind those objects. And I do have to say at the, about the same time, the New York Historical Society had a groundbreaking exhibition in Manhattan about slavery in New York. Mm -hmm. And that was a catalyst uh, in a way for some of the work that we did because once people began to see how pervasive this was even in the North, um, they began to relax a little and say, well, let's see what this reveals. Hmm. You'll be aware that there were oral arguments yesterday at the Supreme Court about the two cases questioning the future of um, 
uh, affirmative action in university admissions. Do you have a feel for where that is going? And also, um, how would you counsel university leaders in for a world where we might be facing uh, post-affirmative action admissions? Well, um, it's more or less a foregone conclusion of, of um, jurists and, uh, and uh, university officials that we'll see the end of affirmative action um, uh, in this court. But um, uh, let me say first um, that I've, I've long thought that this day would come eventually and that this day should come because if the country is doing what it should, there shouldn't be a need for affirmative action. If the policies are just and if the interventions um, around historic inequities uh, are effective, then of course we wouldn't need affirmative action. The question is, has that time arrived yet? Uh, I'm of the view that it has not arrived yet. And we've had recent compelling evidence um, that um, the disparity remains and it remains very significant. Um, but I tend to go uh, toward the uh, diversity argument um, more than any other. And, and for that, I would say, um, you know, growing up in the 40s and 50s um, and experiencing firsthand the uh, discrimination and segregation and racism of that era, I could never have imagined that so many years later, we would be seeing the kinds of things we're seeing in the country today. In many ways, uh, I often say it's worse today than um, that, early, that period of the struggle for civil rights. Um, and I think if it's not clear to people that that is the case, you need only um, to select your news source and look at the images of society uh, across the country and see that we have very serious divisions in this country and very serious uh, 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 disc uh, discrimination uh, ongoing. Uh, now, how do I see the future as an educator? Well, I, what I see in the future is I want more people educated in a way to be healers to bring the country together. And, um, and so I remember my own experience as a young person and the opportunity that I had to live in different cultures. When I was 17 years old, I went to Mexico to live with a Mexican family to learn Spanish. And of course, I studied French and lived with the French family in France. Um, and I have to say that what shaped me and my views about what is possible is interacting with people very different from myself. And so I uh, rather believe as an educator, that um, it is extremely important for classes to be diverse because a lot of the learning experience that our citizens need will take place in a diverse environment, not in a stultified academic environment of uh, like uh, individuals, but uh, in an environment where people are expressing different views, where they're living different lives, where they have um, uh, many ways of seeing the world. 
And I use this example to, um, to educate people about how incredible it is to be in an environment in which suddenly your biases are jolted by someone who has a different perspective. So I was sitting in a class and uh, it was a, happened to be a, a, a philosophy class, a Greek philosophy class. And we turned to the question of apartheid in South Africa. And of course, every person in the class was saying how horrendous it was uh, as a system and how awful South Africans were to perpetuate this uh, unfair system. And then a lone girl raised her hand and, um, and she was South African. And then she made an argument on behalf of apartheid in this class. Mm. Um, and while she didn't persuade me that um, the system was better than I thought it was, she did force me to think about the fact that there were people in the world who saw this and created this system, uh, who thought very differently about, um, about the circumstances in South Africa than, than I could see. That's what education is supposed to do for us. It's not supposed to be rote. It's not supposed to help lead us through the things that we love and appreciate and will always, um, always treasure. It's supposed to jolt us into thinking uh, in a way that allows us to move about the world and appreciate the fact that there are many different perspectives. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm most fearful of that. So what would I say to universities going mm. forward? Mm. You have to try to create that environment for your students. Uh, whatever happens with uh, the Supreme Court decision, as educators, we've got to continue to put in front of our students a diversity that will enrich their learning to the point where they will be capable of leading this country and unifying it because the path we're on now is so divisive that we could end up destroying ourselves uh, by, uh, by not addressing the need to come together and listen to each other and, um, and reach uh, uh, solutions that benefit more than one group. Hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is keep on your, your mission of diversity despite having to do race neutral admissions and find another way, perhaps work together on finding that way, whatever it is, find another way. Whatever it is, um, that's what we're going to have to do. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we are, keep in mind that affirmative action was a, an executive order <laughs> that was handed down. It started that way. And that gave guidance to, um, to institutions about what they might do. But that was just the tip of the iceberg, really. And there's a reason that we talk today about not just diversity, but we talk about diversity and inclusion and all kinds of other things, because we've um, wised up to the fact that uh, the number, you can, you can put people in place and not have the effect that you want. Um, because unless you are trying to move toward a society in which people are working together, thinking mm-hmm. together, producing outcomes together, you're still going to fail. Um, and all you have is a numbers game. So, so I think that um, there are other things we can do and that we must do. I also want to say that um, this wealth disparity that has grown in the country mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. An, is a major problem for us. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that we have opportunities in looking um, to bring more students uh, into our universities who have suffered the long-term, often long-term effects of um, uh, nutrition um, uh, absence um, mm -hmm. uh, and um, poor educational uh, preparation and so forth. There are lots of different ways that we can shape this to make it more diverse. When I was inaugurated as president of Brown, uh, my, my, my speech was about um, the importance of uh, Ivy League universities admitting junior college students. Um, we ought to be a place uh, in this country where people don't decide their life chances are over on the basis of where they were born and what, how much money they have. Mm -hmm. um, this ought to be a place where people can see these, um, uh, these borders as permeable um, so that students can begin anywhere and work hard and develop themselves and move through phases of education to become CEOs or whatever else they want to be. That's the ideal. And I'm sure that's the ideal for most educators. Mm. We just have to figure out how to make that happen in the absence of a law um, mm. that mm. is constructed for that purpose. One thing that came out to me in the, the oral arguments was um, the mention of legacy admissions. And it seems like there are lots of things that are wrong with the admissions practices as well. Would you argue for getting rid of that as well to just increase the, the spots available to a, a wide diversity of pool of students? Okay, so I, I don't want the government mandating what universities do, to be perfectly honest with you, because I don't think mm -hmm. they're qualified generally. Um, policymakers um, uh, don't understand to the same degree um, the issues that universities are dealing with. So let me give you two stark examples. So let's say you've got um, a, uh, a 300 year old institution uh, with a massive endowment um, and um, their, their fortunes are made. And so are the fortunes of people who come to study there. Uh, then you've got um, institutions that are uh, private uh, and that have been starved for funding for all of their existence. And they may not even have any endowment, okay? If you are saying to me that they should not consider legacy, which binds their alumni to them and enables them to be a stronger institution, I don't, I'd have to argue against anything as stringent as that because um, legacies are all about preserving the future of institutions and their stability and their ability to become the institutions fulfilling the missions that they have at the highest possible level. Because alumni tend to drive that, to be perfectly honest with you. Mm. If you take that away, you also take away the ability of many institutions to raise the funds they need, particularly if they're not state institutions. You could ask though legitimately for state institutions whether it should play such a role. Because mm -hmm. if we as citizens are supporting institutions and they're not trying to um, build their, um, their coffers by, um, by focusing on alumni uh, children and so on, 
they have less of a reason, but I don't want to take away the ability of universities to be able to admit legacies that can help preserve their future. You have a, a, a rich uh, work experience, maybe the richest of, of all presidents in the United States. You are on your second HBCU, but you also had a spin in the Ivy League. Um, I wonder what you would say Ivy League and perhaps some more prestigious selective institutions could learn from HBCUs? Well, um, I, I tend um, to be uh, forcefully against the barriers that we set in higher education um, among us. Uh, we are all educating students and therefore um, in you know, naturally, higher education is one of the most elitist sectors in the in the country, right? Um, you have to have been to the right school. Why? Not sure. Um, uh, but um, but we will only hire from certain institutions, um, and we will only admit graduate students from certain institutions. Um, so the places that ought to be most acutely. Um, knowledgeable about quality of intellect and potential often forego the work of making that determination in favor of a proxy, which is where have you been before hmm. <laughs> and what and, and what kind of institution have you been in? And I think we miss a lot when we do that. So I always argue uh, against those barriers and I urge um, educators and institutions to look um, uh, carefully at every individual and what they have the potential to do rather than using proxies uh, for that. Uh, so what the HBCUs have to, um, to teach um, higher education in this country, honestly, I have to say the first and most important thing is that they have survived. Now keep this in mind, HBCUs were generally created um, on a starvation diet. <laughs> and moreover, they were kept on that starvation diet for decades. But at the same time, they were asked to educate students on a par with what the most endowed universities in the country were doing. Imagine that. And so, so then you've got a, um, uh, a Martin Luther King uh, and a Thurgood Marshall and all of these people competing on a par with people who've had the benefit of billions in, um, in assets uh, as institutions. Now think of that, think of, think of that. So um, there is a, a time coming when we have to acknowledge this, this story and say to ourselves that we need to um, embark upon a plan to invest in HBCUs in a way that will uh, level the disparities that have grown up over time. And I like to talk uh, about this disparity in terms of the compounding that uh, takes place in investments. So, you're, uh, you're a 300 year old institution or 200 year old institution and you've had all of these 
uh, riches for all of this time, and that's simply compounded, right? Well, poverty compounds in the same way. Mm. So if you have been starved from the outset and you have been kept on a starvation diet, the effects of that have compounded over time. So um, I'd like to see policies um, by uh, the government to, uh, to address this, but I also want to see our colleagues in higher education acknowledge what this has done to the country mm. and to be part of the solution. So I'm very happy that Harvard has come out with a plan to invest um, in HBCUs. And I'm on a campaign to get other institutions to do that and more. So it's kind of institutions turning around and supporting their fellow higher education provider. Uh, absolutely. So, so I think, I think uh, again, um, you know, I, I often say, well, when I was president of an Ivy League university, um, I would pick up the phone and I'd call uh, my colleague president at Harvard or Princeton and I'd say, you know, well, we need so-and-so, what can we do to cooperate on that? That kind of cooperation that exists among the most elite universities in the world um, uh, leaves out um, these institutions. And so at a minimum, mm. um, we should be able to be a part of that community and benefit from that at the very least. And so I've, uh, so the president of Yale has reached out to us. The president of Princeton has reached out to us. President Johns Hopkins has reached out to us. So I, we, we see the beginnings now, but that's gonna take some time. But what I think we have to offer is um, a vision of this country that is inclusive, that includes all kinds of institutions, it's true, but all of us can play a role that is vital. And of course, I was president of a women's college, um, Smith College, and uh, look at what women have been able to do. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do, but still, women coming out of women's colleges are still contributing significantly to the country. HBCUs can do the same thing. They have done it. They can continue to do it. I know we, we've hopefully got time just for one more question for, for you. Um, and I know that you're coming to the end of your tenure there at Prairie View A&M. And I believe you're staying on to create a, a leadership program for leaders in higher education, specifically women and leaders of color. Tell me what you're going to focus on and, and what you would what, what maybe one or two big changes you would make uh, to facilitate the, the pipeline of, of those leaders to, to lead higher education. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not an advocate for um, sameness, um, <laughs> as you might be able to tell. <laughs> and one of the things that I've tried to emphasize to um, developing leaders is that there's no one formula for excellence in leadership, okay? No matter, you know, forget about the courses, forget about all of these things that tell you, here's what you should do. Um, fundamentally, uh, as an educator, the best thing that you can bring to leadership is yourself. Um, full knowledge of what that is and um, how you have navigated um, the, the experiences that you have had and what I want to see is a greater diversity of people 
leading institutions and showing um, students how it can be done uh, when you are uh, different from the norm, let's say, um, when you have a different perspective. And so we may have a proclivity for uh, designating certain kinds of people from certain fields as, as leaders. Um, and right now, you know, it's STEM, it's, it's, uh, it's engineering and so forth. But um, uh, why couldn't, uh, why couldn't um, the, someone from music lead a university? I don't see any reason whatsoever that couldn't happen. So, so what I want to do is to emphasize the development of the individual to the fullest extent Yes, there are interesting things to know about budgets and about strategic planning. Yes, of course, all of that is good. But whether or not your faculty and your students follow you is not going to depend on how much you know about strategic planning. Okay. And whether or not you have students coming back to you in 10 years and saying, here's what I've done with my life, because I saw in you an example of something that I could relate to. Um, that's what you want to do to see, especially in a university leader, not an automaton imitating somebody else's style, but somebody who offers something um, of their own uh, and asks people to, um, to, to follow them on the basis of their own authentic view of what uh, life should be and what learning should be. That's really what I want to see. Hmm. And just final quick follow up question to that. You said that you would like to focus specifically on on female leaders and leaders of color. Is it a bigger challenge for them to find that self-realization and to present their whole selves in those contexts? Is it more of a challenge for them than than other oh, demographics? Uh, well, naturally, because of the environment that we're in. Um, yes, of course, because we have certain views of women and and their, uh, their uh, personalities. Um, and uh, there are some that we cannot accept because uh, they don't conform to that view. Um, they may be too assertive. They may, they may talk too much. They may think that they're wonderful. And that's maybe not permissible for a lot of people and so forth. And I'll never forget uh, a gentleman at a corporation. I was talking to employees in a corporation. And this uh, gentleman who's black and very tall uh, uh, and um, said that when he presented himself to his colleagues, that he always tried to shrink into the chair so he would be less intimidating. You see, so we're all aware that there are things about us that may be more unsavory or intimidating uh, to people who are judging us. And they're judging us in ways that we often don't even know. Um, you know, for a woman, um, it, is it, you know, is she too stern? Um, is, she, um, is she not wearing the makeup that we expect? Um, does, is she dressed in a manly way um, and so forth? Uh, and when it comes to, uh, to minorities, oh my goodness, um, what's with their hair? And why is it that they want to wear those, uh, those braids and, 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 and cornrows? All, all of that is just so confusing. Why are they doing that when they could just look like us? All of that pertains when people are going to look for jobs. But 
I always say, in spite of that, what really comes through in the end is the work, it's the product that you produce. And so I always encourage uh, people to do their best work and not to pay attention to what people are saying about their hair or about their, um, their dress or about uh, whether or not they're conforming physically to what people expect. If they do their best work, they are going to advance because it isn't so common that that best work is out there for everybody. And most of the time, what is going to be uh, persuasive for people is what can improve on what the institution is doing. Um, and if you have something that can improve on an institution, then um, I've, I've convinced some universities to hire people that they didn't want to hire because they were too um, brash or they were too something else. And um, I, I, I always try to find a way to explain to universities what there is about that person that is going to deliver for them outsized returns. So at Princeton, when they were considering the appointment of, of Toni Morrison, I mean, you know, she was at the university, at all, uh, SUNY Albany, and I, I don't know, you know, she might not fit and all of that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, here was somebody who could conceivably win a Nobel Prize for literature, for God's sake. Um, and so would you consider on that basis? Well, yes, of course. Okay. We would consider her on that basis because if she wins a Nobel Prize, which she did, that will bring credit to the university. So the fact that she looked differently, the fact that she had a different voice, all of those things mm. suddenly didn't matter because of uh, how uh, exceptional she was as a talent. So that's what we have to foster, our mm. talent and producing things that are incontrovertibly valuable and that will that will shine through. Hmm. Which kind of goes back to your other point about universities knowing how to judge potential and getting better at seeing that. Yes, exactly. Good point to end on there. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.